How do you sell an idea? For the citrus industry of the 19th century, they were fighting an uphill battle. Fruit was commonplace, it was ubiquitous. How do you take oranges and make them the biggest fruit in American history? You do so by selling the idea around citrus. If you bought oranges, you weren't just buying oranges, you were buying a luxurious lifestyle, a healthy one, where a piece of the tropical edges of the United States were at your fingertips. But how do you sell that? Our friends over in California had a plan. It's the same way that diamonds have become known as the most valuable gem due to the way that they were sold. Citrus was luxurious because of the story that the California growers told. The first company to really do so was Sunkist, which functioned as a parent company for, quote, hundreds of family farmers and small growers, end quote. This was perfect for the sort of change that agricultural communities were facing in this era. They were creating their own footprint and a community of other growers could strengthen each other as a unit. This group needed to start selling their citrus in big numbers, and the best way to do so was to create a narrative. You could live the perfect life if only you ate more citrus. You would be healthier, you'd be more prosperous, you would be rich. There wasn't radio or television, and print media could only do so much. So, they started printing ads on the boxes. So when they're traveling across the country, or being unloaded at the grocer, the pink, green, red, blue, yellow, and, of course, oranges, would catch your eye. With floral images, sunsets, depictions of beautiful people, and obviously the fruit themselves, the citrus crate labels were works of art. The citrus industry developed over decades with the original designs coming from huge stone plates that would push the designs and the labels together. They would form into a masterpiece, color by color, piece by piece. During the late 19th century, the images were really at the forefront and beautiful vistas sold the story. However, marketing changed after the turn of the century and brand names sold more. Some artists started using airbrushing to soften the images in the background so that the words and the picture of the fruit would pop. Images of the most high-class transportation of the time would be used to denote how important the travel of the citrus was. But by the 1950s, the art of the wooden crate label fell away in favor of something much cheaper. Cardboard. During this entire time, Florida had done the same as California, stealing their moves. There's a larger emphasis on Florida's greener pastures in our labels, with palm trees and beaches and sawgrass peppering many of the boxes. But none of it mattered. In 1956, the last wooden crate labels were printed. Two decades earlier, during the Great Depression, farmers were in dire straits. They could create more crop than they had the ability to sell, and many were left adrift. People had to stick together, especially farmers. Citrus had been a roller coaster for Florida, and the instability was terrifying. So, a group of farmers founded the Florida Citrus Canners Cooperative, built specifically to package the juice and fruit so that their products could be sent out into the world. They provided citrus overseas for soldiers during World War II. Then, afterwards, they would freeze the juice in order to transport it across the country with ease. Then, fresh orange juice became the demand. All these things were changing quickly, but the cooperative kept moving, and in 1969, they rebranded to show how wide the variety of products could be. Now, they were Citrus World, and they had made an alliance with another world, Walt Disney World. It was a natural partnership between the crop that built Florida and the company that would launch us into the future. In 1970, when the Magic Kingdom was just a few months away from opening, a Disney character, unlike any other, was born. Little orange bird, little orange bird, 
Welcome to Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. I'm Nick D'Alessandro. This week, Orange Bird, the Florida Citrus Commission, and the gay rights movement in Miami. Many times, stories start out by saying, once upon a time. That usually means a story happened yesterday, or last week, or last month, or last year, or many years ago. Our story is different. It's once upon a now. As you listen to it and look at the pictures in your book, through the miracle of your imagination, it will be happening to you now. That's Our Anita Bryant. If you're my age, you've likely never heard of her. But during the late 1960s, she had the kind of down-home flair that made Americans swoon. She was from Oklahoma and, at 19, was Miss Oklahoma in the Miss America pageant. She came in third, but it skyrocketed her career. Soon, she was a singer, recording 11 songs that eventually made it to the Billboard Top 100. She married her manager, one DJ named Bob Green, and moved to Miami to live with him in 1960. Anita spent her 20s singing, traveling, and luxuriating in her new South Florida lifestyle. At the same time, Citrus World and their allies in the state government, the Florida Citrus Commission, needed a face for their partnership with Disney. It was a true union of powers. They had been working together for a few decades already with Donald Duck Orange Juice, a concentrate juice that most accounts depict as tasting horrible. Here's a commercial from 1980 for the drink with Clarence Nash, the original voice of Donald Duck himself. <clears throat> May I introduce you to Donald Duck Orange Juice? It's Clarence is all dressed up, wandering through a grocery store set, pointing with an orange in his hand. At the end, as he takes a sip, his voice suddenly changes. Donald Duck OJ is still sold today, and many say it tastes just as awful as it always has. Disney was coming to Florida. Disneyland had been such a smash success, and Walt Disney World in Orlando would soon follow. They wanted to make nice with the corporations around Orlando as well. If they all thrived together, maybe they could thrive longer. So the citrus industry and Disney made a deal. The Florida Citrus Commission and Citrus World would sponsor the Sunshine Tree Terrace in Adventureland, and Disney would create a mascot and produce a song, a book, and a record of stories related to their new mascot. And that new mascot was Orange Bird. Orange Bird's design is fairly simple. His head is an orange with a little sprig of leaves on the top. He has bright, cute eyes and a smiling yellow beak. His wings are actually also green leaves with the veins of a leaf running down the middle. His body is squat and orange with a yellow tummy and yellow feet. He's kind of the perfect mascot. He's cute, he's charming, and he literally is the thing he's trying to sell. He didn't speak, however. He could only puff little clouds of smoke which would project images like a glass of orange juice or words. Oftentimes, he would just sprout the word nice from his mouth. The Orange Bird song, which you heard at the beginning of this episode, was composed by none other than the Sherman Brothers, the famous duo that composed the music for Mary Poppins. But who could sing that song? Orange Bird himself couldn't speak. They needed a face. Come to the Florida sunshine tree. Hey, come back, little Orange Bird. I want to introduce you. Here is Anita Bryant, wandering an orange grove in a flowing white dress, her hair all poofed up. She picks an orange off the tree, and it transforms suddenly into our friend, the Orange Bird, who tells us to think orange. Then comes the most iconic tagline from Citrus History. Ball 
Walt Disney World. And remember, breakfast without orange juice is like a day without sunshine. The campaign is a smash success. Commercials are everywhere. Orange juice becomes the staple for breakfast menus, and Orange Bird is the little advocate for the fruit carrying Anita in his wake. When driving into Florida, especially as you got closer and closer to Orlando, you would see signs not just advertising orange juice, but advertising the little orange bird and his home in the Sunshine Tree Terrace at that pillar of family fun, Walt Disney World. Within a year, nearly all of Florida's oranges were put into orange juice, about 90%. Cocktails were being made specifically to include orange juice in them. Per capita sales of the drink were through the roof. It had been an uphill battle for decades, but now... It had peaked. It was a miracle. Orange tree with your fragrant branches blossoming. Orange tree, what a miracle you except for one problem. One big, messy problem. The Cold War had been rough all over the country, but Florida had a boogeyman all its own, depending on who you were asking. For the more conservative-leaning, the activists calling for change throughout the mid-20th century were trying to destabilize their ways of life. Liberalism became equated with socialism shortly, and socialism is obviously connected to communism. If the bad guys over in Russia also believe in communism, that means that the liberals are the communists, and that means the liberals are evil. So when desegregation, gay rights, and feminism started taking center stage, the pushback was serious. If you were a liberal in Florida, the Boogeyman was a group known as the Florida Legislative Investigation Committee, formerly called the Johns Committee. It was run by Charlie Johns, a horn-rimmed, glasses-wearing state senator who briefly served as governor before our pal Leroy Collins was elected in 1956. After leaving that position, Johns formed the Johns Committee. He believed that the civil rights conversations we were having were a ploy by the communists to undermine American freedoms by stirring dissent. They began investigating the NAACP, as well as major universities in the state, to see if quote-unquote subversive teachers had been brought in. For nearly a decade, universities were routinely questioned and harassed by members of the Johns Committee. By 1965, the committee was disbanded, but their sentiment remained. Four years later, and a thousand miles north, police raided a gay club in New York City's Greenwich Village called the Stonewall Inn. They arrested 13 individuals and sparked a week-long riot in the streets of New York. The gay rights movement had been growing over the previous few years, but the Stonewall riot united the community and the rest of the country felt those ripple effects. Three years after that, in 1972, the Democratic National Convention took place in Miami. There, the delegate from California, Jim Foster, spoke. He said, quote, To our millions of gay brothers and sisters, as well as the Democratic Party, we say, We are here. We will not be still. We will not go away until the ultimate goal of gay liberation is realized, that goal being that all people can live in the peace, the freedom, the dignity of what they are." End quote. The conversation was now national. Florida saw the tide of change approaching as well when, in 1975, gay rights activist Bob Basker, along with law professor from the University of Miami Bruce Winnick, drafted a county ordinance 
that would oppose discrimination in Dade County upon the basis of sexual orientation. It would remove this type of discrimination in employment, housing, or public services. This meant that queer residents of Miami could be teachers. The ordinance passed 5-3 to three on January 18, 1977. A very vocal faction of the religious right in Miami immediately made their opinion known. They believed that homosexuality was a lifestyle choice and that a gay teacher would be indoctrinating or recruiting children into homosexuality themselves. All of their rhetoric is oozing with hateful language depicting queer folks as predatory, sadistic, and immoral. The fight may not have gone the way it did if it hadn't been for the new face of the religious right in Miami, Anita Bryant, the face of the Florida Citrus Commission. Anita was an outspoken evangelical conservative who believed that this new ordinance would tell the city, the state, and the country that, quote, all government jobs, even the most sensitive, must be thrown open to homosexuals, pimps, prostitutes, and every other unsavory, unnatural, sexual libertine, end quote. There's a lot to unpack there, but Anita had made it very clear how she felt. She had an ally in her beliefs in the Democratic governor, Ruben Askew, who was on his second term in the office and clearly didn't have much to lose. Anita created a group called Save Our Children, which gathered 60,000 signatures from supporters. The petition said that the county commission needed to either overturn the ordinance or hold a special election. That special election would be held on June 7, 1977. In the months leading up, thanks to the minor celebrity of Anita Bryant entering the fray, the national conversation about gay rights suddenly turned its spotlight on Miami. Anita would do interview after interview spouting lies and upholding the same sort of rhetoric of the Johns Committee a decade or so earlier. The Cold War was still on, and the communists were coming for our quote-unquote traditional values as a means to undermine the foundation of American society. Using all of this manipulative rhetoric, she successfully sold her idea to the people of Miami, at least. The city voted. 90,000 people voted to keep the ordinance. 202,000 voted to repeal it. That's more than double. The anti-discrimination law was repealed. The very next day, the governor signed bills banning gay marriage and gay adoption. Anita Bryant celebrated. But Anita's victories did not last long. She had made enemies, and the queer community nationwide rallied around something they had never really had before. A boogeyman. Within weeks of the ordinance being overturned, pride parades across the country were holding up images of the enemies to humanity, showcasing the villains of history. Those faces were Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, the Ku Klux Klan, and Anita Bryant. In October of the same year in Des Moines, Iowa, a protester named Tom Higgins stood in the audience with a banana cream pie in his hands. And went into a place called Norfolk, Virginia, and were met with protest and uh, um, all kinds of problems. And uh, uh, every... Tom slammed the pie in Anita's face. Well, at least it's a fruit pie. Huh. Let's pray, let's pray for him right now, Anita. Whatever Anita had envisioned when she spoke up all those months ago, she was a villain now, and things were just getting worse for her. A few months later, in our sister state of California, the first openly gay American politician was elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. His name was Harvey Milk. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. He made speeches across the city and the state advocating for gay rights and openly naming the opponents to the movement. Here's a name you might recognize. I'm tired of listening to the Anita 
twist the language of the Bible to fit their own distorted outlook. Where can you hit someone where it hurts the most? Anita was fighting to make homosexuality viewed as a crime, and in one interview stated that she believed it should be made illegal. How do you combat someone who wants to criminalize you for being who you are? She had a platform, and the gay rights movement didn't. Except that Anita had one weakness, the very thing she had built a nearly decade-long career on. During Anita's campaign, the Florida Citrus Commission backed her, donating money to her group Save Our Children. Then, in November of 1977, they went public in support of Anita's bigoted campaign as she traveled the country spreading her ideas. This alliance was Anita's weakness. Almost immediately after that story was made public, human rights advocates across the country decided to hit them where it hurt and started boycotting oranges and orange juice nationwide. Protesting back against Anita could have been damaging to the gay rights movement if the media had converted Anita into a quote-unquote martyr. However, with the commission backing her up, the movement was now facing a titan. The credit for the boycott goes to the Dade County Coalition for the Humanistic Rights of Gays, who even invited Harvey Milk into the fight. Harvey was charismatic, bubbly, and brilliant, and didn't hide from naming names and fighting the fight. Soon, gay bars and bars that supported the movement started selling their signature orange juice cocktails without orange juice. They would replace them with apple juice instead and would call them the Anita Bryant. Activists wore pins that read, Anita Bryant sucks oranges. She was to be denied any television or radio opportunities. All of this came to serve as a counterculture to Anita Bryant's mainstream campaign for which she refused to surrender. This was, of course, her demise. By 1980, Anita Bryant's life was in shambles. She was going through a divorce. She had lost all opportunities to work. Then, as a nail in the coffin, the Florida Citrus Commission dropped her. In an autobiography of her life that was published in the 90s, Anita speaks on the incident as if she was somehow treated unfairly, victimizing herself and blaming the media for her public decline. After 1980, America mostly left Anita behind. But what about Orange Bird? Hopefully you didn't forget our little friend because Disney certainly didn't. The commission might have saved some face by dropping Anita, but they never formally denounced their behavior. Orange Bird himself wasn't on TV anymore as nearly all of his commercials were with Anita. His image still appeared in gift shops in the state and a walk around character with a huge bulbous head still wandered around the Magic Kingdom. This all ended in 1986. The Florida Citrus Commission ended their deal and we're still not sure why. Out of nowhere, Orange Bird was gone. Within a few years, all images of his face were removed. My heart hurts when I think about Orange Bird. He represented an idea, one that I love. I know he's just a fictional character, but have you seen Orange Bird? He's perfect, and he loves oranges. That's his whole character. That's all he's got. He's just a little bird who wants you to drink healthy Florida orange juice. As time went on, he started featuring in educational cartoons by Disney about healthy diets and the importance of a rounded breakfast. He was this amazing cross between two of Florida's most crucial industries. He was not Anita Bryant. He was not the anti-gay movement, and he was not the Florida Citrus Commission. He started as a way to sell an idea, but he grew beyond that. Despite all that, after about 17 years, the orange bird was gone. 
Then in 2004, Tokyo Disneyland brought him back. Orange Bird had gained a following with Japanese Disney fans. A new holiday had sprung up called Orange Day, which was celebrated on April 14th every year. It was sort of a sequel to Valentine's Day, where new love would be affirmed with the gift of oranges or orange-colored gifts. On Orange Day of 2004, Tokyo Disney came out with Orange Bird-themed items to celebrate the day properly. Five years later, Disney was beginning its trend of banking on nostalgia. They were slowly selling more and more merchandise until 2012, and that is when Orange Bird fully made his comeback. They rebranded the Sunshine Tree Terrace and Adventureland to include Orange Bird with his arms raised and a big smile on his beak. You could see his mascot wandering around in the area as well. You could buy Orange Bird pins, Orange Bird Mickey ears, Orange Bird dresses, Orange Bird mugs, and a stuffed Orange Bird plush. This year is Orange Bird's 50th anniversary, and he has never been more popular. The Florida Citrus Commission never came back to Disney. Citrus World has rebranded itself several times since, and they still sell the infamous Donald Duck orange juice. Their main product, the one you've probably heard of, is Florida Naturals orange juice. Harvey Milk was assassinated in November of 1978 when he was shot down by another city supervisor. Anita Bryant never returned to popularity and has had many bankruptcies since the 1980s. In the election of 2008, a constitutional amendment in Florida was passed by 62% that banned gay marriage in the state. This came as a response to a flurry of more and more marriages happening in California and beyond. Then, in late 2014, months before the Supreme Court made gay marriage legal across the country, civil rights lawyers started fighting on behalf of several couples for their right to marry. They took it to the state courts, and on January 5, 2015, several same-sex couples started getting married in one specific county, Miami-Dade. In the same county where the gay rights movement found their boogeyman 40 years earlier, Florida's same-sex couples saw the future. That idea never died. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. I seriously hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider leaving it a review or sharing it with a friend. Please, it is so easy to do. Just click the share. Tell your friend about it. This show has so many great episodes and so many different ways for someone to get interested in what it's about. I really believe that there is an episode in this catalog for everyone. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Wait 5 Minutes, on Instagram at Wait 5 Minutes Podcast, on the new Facebook page, Wait 5 Minutes The Floridian Podcast, or you can send me an email at Wait 5 Minutes Podcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you, and I would love to hear what topic related to Florida you are really passionate about. Maybe it will be an episode down the line. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find the names of those songs as well as the links used in the research in the description below. You can also find all of the links for the additional audio in this episode in the description below as well. Be sure to go back and listen to this most recent episode of Tallahassee Tuesday that came out just a few days ago. It covered a lot of important topics and included an important announcement about the future of Tallahassee Tuesday with Wait 5 Minutes. As for the next main episodes of Wait 5 Minutes, I am so excited about this. There will not be an episode next Friday, May 31st. 
There will, however, be a very special announcement. Throughout the month of June, I will be doing a special four-part episode about the most important part of Florida's history. I am so excited for this. I, I cannot tell you how long I have been planning and preparing for it. You can find out what that is next Friday on May 31st on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages. I am so excited for you to hear it. So I will see you June 7th with a brand new series, the first episode in a four-part series. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and drink more orange juice and water. Drink orange juice and water. Have a great weekend.